CFBS. Radio 2. Sit with Christopher Lee. Suzanne Chislett, thank you very much, and the BFBS newsroom team. This is Christopher Lee, and you, you're very welcome at the Sit Rep Round Table on a hot, sunny London afternoon. Defence cuts, it's official. What does he say? Aha, let me be quite clear, change is coming. Well, we knew that, didn't we? UK troops move over in Helmand, job well done, but what job? NATO, cock up, and friendly Afghan soldiers die. Corruption and money laundering, good business in Kabul. Iraq, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Kashmir, and so on and so on. Is peace, peace really worth fighting for? A missile deal in Europe, just name an enemy and ignore international law. Iraq, was the MOD totally incompetent or totally uncaring in the manner it treated families of service people killed in action? Tony Blair, why our man in Tehran fanged the former PM. White House glad to handing, but does anyone really believe Israel's on the team? Cyprus coming to terms with terms, spy swapping. The American Americans and the Russians and the Brits are at it today, or they're supposed to be, and the ladies in white and the bishop, and why quiffs are banned, and what that tells us about whiffs of nuclear war. Right, let's start with those cuts. The big changes are about to come for all the armed forces. Who says so? The Minister of the Armed Forces, or for the Armed Forces himself, the Liberal Democrat Nick Harvey. In a speech at the Royal United Services Institute here in London yesterday, he made a telling point. Make no doubt of it. Changes are going to come. On the line is Michael Codden, the Director of Military Science Programme, at the RUSI, and with me in the studio, is Eric Grove, the director of the Centre for International Security and War Studies at the University of Salford. Both at uh, yesterday's conference, um, the version, if you read the newspapers today, is that the armed forces are going to shrink and rely on allies. Michael Codner, is that what he said? Hello, Michael Codner. No, not Michael Codner. Eric Grove, you were there. Is that what he said? Uh well, sort of, but so much sort of. I don't think it really do, does any kind, of, any, kind of, any kind of justice to what he said. I mean, basically, he was saying, yes, change was coming. But he was very ambitious. He said there were no geographical boundaries to Britain's interests and that the armed forces were going to change but, and they were going to em- emphasise prevention, deterrence and defence and defence um, diplomacy, that, that they had to be able to give maximum choice to decision-makers. He did make the point about this, there, would, there would be less focus on weight and scale, but more on quality and less duplication with allies, is, are my notes here. Um, and the impression I got was that we, we'd move away from large military deployments and emphasise capabilities like carrier strike, for example, like air power, like mobility and amphibious forces and airborne forces, to be able to go in, do things and come out again, giving maximum choice to the decision makers and working very much in an alliance context. And in certain circumstances, yes, allies would do more than we did, uh, might do, but nonetheless, Britain would still have forces that were globally capable and quite effective. Okay, uh, Michael Codner, um, I'm just wondering, he said, one of the things he said that uh, the military would be expected to continue as he says, in its diverse roles of combating human trafficking, tackling drug smugglers, promoting energy security and delivering humanitarian aid. I mean, I can see the military context of that, but it doesn't sound sort of military, does it? I mean, why do you need Trident? Why do you need two aircraft carriers uh, and Eurofighter, etc., to do that? I think he was trying to be comprehensive and to um, include in what he was presenting... uh, 
all the contrib- wider contributions to, the secur- to security that the military can make. And, of course, uh, talking up, as Eric's already mentioned, the prevention end of uh, the spectrum, which uh, requires um, uh, emphasis on some of these other factors. See, the other thing I, I had... Um the uh, first sea lord, um, chief of the naval staff, Admiral Sir Mark Stanhope, he was there, um, or are you say, and he said he was call- he was calling for closer integration integration of sea, air, and land forces, etc., with one's allies. Um, that doesn't sound very sort of navy independent stuff, doesn't it? I mean, is the navy caving into the inevitable here? Well, you could interpret it in a very different way, and that is to say our armed forces need to be more closely integrated, uh, but there is um, uh, an issue of what is the British appropriate contribution. And uh, from his point of view, of course, the appropriate contribution for a maritime nation and an island power would that we would contribute perhaps a, a greater proportion in an alliance context of maritime power, particularly alongside other European nations, than we would, for instance, for heavy armour. Mm. Now, I'm telling you, there's another part of this, uh, Michael, and that is that it is very clear, except in, I don't know, things like Sierra Leone or uh, perhaps, uh, heaven forbid, the Falklands, um, the United Kingdom is not going to get involved in a single operation. It's always going to be coalition, or that's what we imagine. Is that what he's really saying? that's certainly not uh, the policy context in which he's speaking, even though that's how it was read. Uh, at the end of the day, the United Kingdom has got to be able to deliver on uh, the government's uh, specific responsibilities, which include uh, homeland defence and the overseas territories. These are not things that allies would necessarily participate in. And at the under end of the spectrum, uh, to deter against uh, major bullying by an uh, emergent power, we would have to contribute, and that would also be an obligation. Um, the area in between is where we choose to do things or governments choose to do things um, and uh, that is inevitably going to be one that we would do largely with other nations. Sierra Leone was one case where it wasn't but um, that would be unusual but we still have these national obligations which could well be what things we have to do on our own. Yes, Eric. There are two important points I think on which the Telegraph was very misleading. Not what just I, the Telegraph. What I got away, well, is the report that I've read. One of, uh, one of the things I, I thought that Admiral Stanhope really stressed, the first Sea Lord, was that there was a bottom line to our capabilities. And actually that bottom line was quite high up the scale of capability because we have to protect the Falklands. That's an important uh, national interest. And that therefore uh, we, we couldn't cut back our national contribution that much. So in fact it's almost the opposite of the gloss which the newspaper reports have been, um, been emphasising. And, and I think that... Um, the, also, he made great play of the fact that uh, the Secretary of State has actually said we mustn't be sea blind, and things seem to be going relatively well from the naval point of view. But as a reflection of that, perhaps, a great, the great emphasis in the first Sea Lord statement was that we, what we want is a coordinated defence policy, and that the armed services recognise the great danger of what happened in previous reviews with the various the three forces being turned against each other, that they must come up with some kind of coordinated policy. Right. Um, Michael, stay on the line, because I want to bring in, uh, at the table at the moment, the former diplomatic editor of the Daily Mail, John Dickey, and from City University here in London, the Middle East specialist, Dr Rosemary Hollis. John, um, where where is the foreign office bit in here? Because all these things they're talking about, presumably the military, whatever they do... Uh, are supposed to be arms for foreign policy. 
Well, the new Foreign Secretary, Mr Haig, has set out a, a new vision of a, an enlarged commitment beyond the traditional areas of uh, so-called relations with the United States and with Europe. The other thing that is puzzling about yesterday's debate is the emphasis put on uh, coordination with Europe, and that presumably means coordination with France because it's the only major power in Europe with similar capacities to ours. And I think it sounds well in theory, but in practice, I think there are all sorts of difficulties. I mean, the École Spéciale Militaire de Saint-Cyr trains um, French officers and men in a totally different way and a different ethic from those of, of, say, Sandhurst. So I think that sort of coordination will be full of difficulties. Right. Um, Rosemary Hollis, if we think Mm. about the the commitments of the the British military, Mm. I mean, largely at the moment we're thinking Afghanistan, we're still thinking in in some ways Iraq Mm. is a recent exercise that we've been through. Uh, We're thinking the very real possibilities of uh, confrontation with Iran. I see is that the foreign secretary or foreign minister of Abu Dhabi or somebody said, yes, we we wouldn't mind if somebody zaps Iran because we don't want them to be a nuclear power. These are the things which we can't stay outside. We can't say, oh, well, you know, we're going to change our policies. Well, this business of working with others has been there as far as the defence of the Arab Gulf states is concerned since the invention of Central Command, U.S. Central Command. And in the 1990s, uh, after the end of the Cold War, there was a kind of free-for-all competition to sell arms to the small and slightly larger Saudi Arabia, uh, being the slightly larger um, Arab states in the Gulf, uh, for their own defence. And there was a huge row between the British and the French and the Americans over this selling of kit to these guys, uh, the customers wanted to buy from all three powers because they wanted to spread their bets and they quite liked the idea of setting the French and the British and the Americans against each other. But the Americans were complaining, we're trying to join these forces up, we're trying to get Oman to work with Saudi, to work with UAE, to work with Kuwait because they've got no capacity on their own and uh, along with your British kit you're, you're selling them your British dock which is not the same as the one we want to sell them. And uh, they didn't work it out, frankly, and it just continued to be a buyer's market. And on the receiving end, they didn't particularly want to cooperate with each other because they don't trust each other enough to cooperate. Right. Um, Just quickly, Michael, um, are we working it out yet or is it sort of making up as we go along? As far as the evolution of, of yeah. defence policy, yes. well, uh, it, it, at the moment there is a state of, 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 of huge flux and uncertainty. The Ministry of Defence is getting all its uh, preparatory papers written for government to tackle uh, during the month of August with a view to pulling it all together in September for a paper that the bulk of which must be written for the comprehensive spending review in October. And meanwhile, the Cabinet Office is still really getting itself together to be doing the leading that the security part of the review is meant to be doing. So there's a bit of a mismatch there. Uh, Ministry of Defence has been running since the Green Paper on this issue. Um, And uh, there's huge uncertainties still, which won't be resolved till early September, when there isn't a great deal of time. And one wonders whether the choices that will be made will be um, made with the best consideration, if that's the timeline that we're working to. Yeah, let's, let's move back to uh, something else yesterday, uh, Michael, and that's the official announcement about the UK redeployment in Helmand. 
Uh, it came in the Commons yesterday, the Defence Secretary, Dr Liam Fox. Anyone who missed it, and correct me if I got this slightly wrong, the short version is this, when the current tour of 40 commander in Sangin finishes, then the British deployment will be replaced by US forces. About 300 of the UK Theatre Reserve Battalion uh, will go on temporary deployment to Central Helmand in a couple of weeks. That's not a UK decision, that's an IS, ISAF request. request. Michael, um, the question in some of the papers this morning is not a question of retreat, uh, by the British um, British forces in, in Sangin. It's a question of the job has clearly been very well done, but has the job been done? Well, the, uh, the job is part of um, a, a much wider job, and Sangin itself is never going to be resolved until uh, the um, whole Afghan problem is at least taken forward to some sort of conclusion. So these readjustments, rationalizations, which is what this is all about, um, are never going to, uh, to conclude that there has been, in the old speak, victory in Sangin. That's never going to happen until in the wider context um, uh, things are taken forward, and not only obviously in the military sense, but um, in, in development of, of Afghan capacity for its own security, the economy and everything else. Yeah. I mean, Liam Fox was saying yesterday we didn't want to talk about victory because that's not the way it works now, didn't he? Exactly. Yeah. Listen, the other part of this, and that is, and that is from the military point of view, it actually makes sense, doesn't it? Because that uh, uh, 40 commando is effectively removed them, it's effectively linking the UK battle group to its brigade. Simple as that. Uh, absolutely. I mean, the, the um, uh, concentrating around the centre of Helmand, which is the British bit, with the Americans to the north and to the south, around Lashkar. Um, the problem, of course, is perceptions, not only perceptions as far as the British public is concerned, but also the Taliban, the rest of the world, that we are retreating. And it's the job of analysts such as us to, uh, if we agree <laughs> with MED's position, um, that uh, this is not a retreat in any sense. This is a sensible rationalisation because the task we took on in Helmand originally was far uh, beyond what we could commit. And um, the Americans, uh, have, with their surge, have allowed us to do a sensible job. Right. Uh, Michael Codner from the RUSI, thank you very much indeed. I think also on, um, on, on the line we've got uh, Chris Hughes, the security editor of the Daily Mail. Chris. Uh, Daily Mirror, actually. Daily um, Mirror. I do apologise. Do apologise. Okay. okay. Yes, yes, yes. You're not upset, are you? Really? No, not at all. No, 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 no. I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> You're still here. Uh, listen, um, it, something that strikes me, um, coming back to something I was asking Michael Codner, um, there is this tendency, isn't it, with the memory of, uh, I suppose, what went on in Basra in uh, 2007, yeah. the withdrawal of the British there, for people to say, oh, the Americans moved in and moved the Brits out because they weren't doing the job properly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that was a question that was asked um, by a, quite a brave reporter yesterday um, uh, from another paper um, of um, uh, Major General Gordon Messenger at the MOD. And he, I say brave because obviously very senior commanders in the military are very, very defensive of this kind of attitude that, we're, that British forces are withdrawing as we did in Basra because I think in this case it's quite different, it's quite distinct from that because what, as uh, your previous um, interviewee Michael um, pointed out, this is joined up military thinking. What's happened is that they're consolidating, that more troops are in fact moving into central uh, Helmand from 
the UK, um, as you both agreed that uh, the, the, this is brigade headquarters linking up with the battle group. Um, uh, Lashkagar, Nawa, Nadi Ali, Nari Saraj are all places which need more troops and more concentrated uh, ground forces, boots on the ground, you know, this ink blot effect which we keep hearing about in counterinsurgency where they want locals in central Helmand to see uh, you know, friendly faces on troops but troops who are saying to the Taliban, you know, you, you don't live here anymore and you're not going to be welcome. We will get rid of you. Um, and, and some of the, you know, extreme violence that we've seen in Sangin and the huge sacrifice made by UK troops, I think so far 99 have been killed there in the last uh, four years. Um, it, 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 it is hugely relevant. I mean, Major General Messenger said to us yesterday, you know, this, 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 the, the, the um, Sangin will remain in the hearts of all, all British forces for some time. You know, the, it's, it's now in this kind of, it's now in the DNA of British soldiers that, that Sangin is a, a very, very relevant place. Um, just because they're leaving uh, doesn't mean to say it's any kind of capitulation. They're just going elsewhere into central Helmand. And that, by the way, is going to be a very, very uh, tough battle. Um, people are talking about a, a summer showdown with the Taliban in central Helmand, and that's, you know, Sangin may well be the focus at the moment, because that's where most of our forces have been killed in the last uh, four years. Uh, I think it's a third of them, have, um, a third of our fatalities there have, have occurred in Sangin. That, 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 that may be the case. However, there have been very, very tough battles elsewhere. Chris, um, yeah. tell me something. Um, we're talking about a move here, of um, everybody's been talking the past 24 hours, and a move of nothing more than a reu reduced battle group, you know, a thousand people. True. But we're talking about 7,000 more. I was thinking something very ordinary, and you, I know, are a frequent visitor to Camp Bastion. You take some group which probably you didn't even come across. I mean, I was thinking the Royal Engineers 64 yeah. Works group. Just getting on with what appears to be mundane, very rarely reported. I wonder how the rest of the British Army uh, in in Helmand, see this whole debate? Um, are you talking about the engineers, Royal yeah. Engineers? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, look I, I, I don't think that any uh, uh, member of the armed forces out in Helmand would share the view that, uh, that, that what the engineers have achieved and are continuing to achieve is in any way mundane. I mean, these are people who go out... I mean, I, I've witnessed it myself in places like Nauzad, Musakala, Kajaki, all three places which have been handed back to the Americans where... Um, British engineers in full fighting gear are going out and filling holes and, and building up um, fortifications whilst under fire. I mean, keeping I the fuel coming in. I'm sorry. Keeping the fuel fuel supplies coming in. Well, well not yeah. only that, but but uh, but actually taking on the Taliban, fighting them as well. Yeah. Engineers. I mean, I, I remember I, I, there was a, a young reporter who just started interviewing a group of um, para engineers and saying, do you feel like soldiers as well? And one of them almost punched <laughs> the guy for being so insulting. You know, yeah. these, these are British infantiers, you know. Yeah. Chris Hughes, thank you very much indeed. That's uh, Chris Hughes, the security editor of the Daily Mirror. Okay. Um, can I just, just a, a, a quick thought here on, uh, on the balance between, Rosemary, what uh, I hear Liam Fox saying and what I hear the Prime Minister saying? Now, I'm not trying to sort of crank up a bit of a difference between them, but we've got David Cameron saying that he can he see us fighting in, say, five years' time, and he says, no, not really. Uh, and I think he probably means, I hope not. Um, and Fox says, uh, we'll get a, we, we can't go until the job is finished. There's a terrible difference here, isn't there? And we're talking Afghanistan, yeah. purely. Uh, the, 
I, I must say I'm amongst the confused as to what we're supposed to understand. I do appreciate, though, and I think that the last few minutes have been very useful in putting everything that has happened this week in a broader context. And I was thinking in terms of any war, there are many battles in any war, and you don't win all of them, but you, you hope to succeed overall. And if you think of something as massive as the Second World War, uh, there was no alternative but to share the war effort mm. with allies. And you did have them doing what they were best at. And you knew when there was a, supposedly a victory because one lot said, I oh, know, OK, we've had enough, which is quite different from what's going on now. And, and in terms of the follow-through at the end of the war, if you think about it, the Americans were ready to do the follow-through in Greece uh, and thereafter with Turkey in a way that the British couldn't hold on to. Uh, the British were retracting there. And I think it... I, I imagine that some of what's uh, troubling Cameron is he needs to sound the right tone for the leader of the Conservative Party, who's now arrived in number 10, but at the same time, the man who's our leader in the 21st century, when realities have changed so fundamentally. And he is the man who wants to be seen as the new Conservatives as opposed to the mm. old ones. Can I just John make Dickey. one point about contracting? At the end of the European campaign, the British were not contracting. Mm. I went from the D-Day beaches of Normandy to Germany and then was brought back to do something more, and that was to you join the Far, East, uh, the Far East invasion. Rosemary's talking about 1947. Uh, invasion of, of Malaysia uh, and that was a tremendous commitment which fortunately didn't have to be made because of the surrender of the Japanese but then we continued on in Indochina, I was in Vietnam for, I stayed there for a year No, 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 I'm talking about the post-troop follow-through in this case it was the Truman Doctrine that was to take care of uh, the middle band of Europe yeah. that had been amongst mm. Churchill's aspirations. Uh, can the I just, you know, let, me, let me just put this in some sort of context. Um, we started off by uh, obviously talking about cuts and we started talking about uh, the Minister of the Armed Forces. Um, John, um, for the first time, apart from, I suppose, 1940, 45, we've got... Uh, two political persuasions in the defence ministries. That is the confusion that, uh, understandably, Dr Hollis was talking about. I mean, uh, it's normally been a decision-making process right at the top, but for some reason now, because of the coalition with the Lib Dems, they are seen to be uh, given a, a greater voice, and that is causing a great deal of I concern in Whitehall. Eric, you only, don't think this? Well, the only, the only the area where there has been an effect to the Lib Dems is that they're having another look at Trident, and I got the impression from the discussion yesterday... I thought they'd agreed that, in the, principle, that a part of it would at least would go on. Well, yes, no, I mean, the, 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 the plan is that they'll probably reduce certain aspects of Trident. I mean, I think now it's, if policy remains the same, we'll almost certainly come down to three submarines, each with 12 missiles, and this should please the greener aspects of the Liberal Democrats, that the, that the, that the force is being worked, is being, is, is being reduced and, 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 and made more cost-effective. <laughs> it won't. It won't. I mean, you look, read everything that the greener aspects you call the Libs say, they say, let's get rid of it, but if you want to get in coalition, you can't do that. Well, I know they do, and happily, they're being sat on at the moment. And, and, and the... And, and the, and, and, um, the uh, 
So, uh, uh, but I got the impression, actually, that we have a pretty focused defence policy, actually. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I came away from the discussions yesterday and a little bit I, I was able to get to today, really quite optimistic that I think we are going to have a defence policy that will be rigorously examined as far as it can be in the time. And Mike's absolutely right, the time is short. But they're doing the best they can. They've got parallel work strands going on. They've got a series of studies, and these are not studies of things to be cut. They are studies of all the capabilities which are being rigorously looked at. Cross-examination of the officers who are in charge of those particular aspects mm. is taking place. It seems to be that although there is pressure of time, nonetheless, a pretty rigorous examination of policy. And, 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 and as, the, as the first Sea Lord said, what we need to do is to move towards something which, which uh, an, an emphasis on, on, on preventing a conflict and doing something about a conflict. crisis, not dealing with the results of mishandling conflicts like we've done in Iraq and Afghanistan, the two biggest strategic mistakes of my lifetime. Well, I... I, I, I um... I will not. I will not get into a historical uh, argument with either uh, anybody here. But as far as I can remember, uh, one of our problems in in Britain and elsewhere, we've never spotted any conflict that's coming up, apart from a couple of them, and never been in a position to do anything about them anyway. Yeah, I, it, it doesn't sound very realistic. It's uh, it, it's dreaming. Well, I think in a more you know, in, a, in a more general sense, it's the kind of thing that we did in the nineteenth century, where we had a sort of generalised capability. That yeah, we lost in, in Afghanistan. There, listen. No, we didn't. Move. We won the Second Afghan War. That's a terrible <laughs> historical mistake. Okay, right there you are. Talking of Afghanistan, um, the cynics who say let's get out also say one of the reasons for doing so is that Afghanistan is a mix of warring tribes, and we can never sort it. Uh, um, other people are saying, well, you know, corruption money laundering. A lot of people are saying that on the line, Jerome Starkey in Kabul um, for the Times. Uh, Jerome, you have been looking at documents that show that at least, and I think this is the right figure, $4.2 billion in hard cash, that's a lot of suitcases, um, have been exported from Kabul during the past three and a half years. Whose money? Who's got it? Where's it going? Well, this is really uh, where the mystery lies, where the money has come from. Uh, the first indication of this came uh, just after uh, the beginning of 2010 when we learned that about a billion dollars a year in cash was being declared and being flown out of Kabul airport. Um, letters from the Afghan finance ministry to the uh, head of the U.S. aid appropriation subcommittee in Congress, uh, which I saw showed that, in fact, that figure was $4.2 billion over the last three and a half years. Now, uh, and Lowy uh, insisted that she wasn't going to send another dime to Afghanistan until she could be sure that American taxpayers' money wasn't going to line, in her words, the pockets uh, of corrupt officials and warlords. But interestingly, uh, it comes hot on the heels of a, of a report by Congress called Warlords, Inc., in which, the, in which investigators uh, expressed concern that money, particularly money being spent by the U.S. military on logistics, was into the hands of warlords and possibly even falling into the hands of the insurgents because of the way uh, these logistics contractors use private security companies to pay off men in order to get their cargoes through uh, difficult and dangerous territory. But interestingly, the Afghan government has hit back at that because most of that money never goes near the Afghan government. The Afghan government is uh, often and often very rightly accused uh, of being riddled with corruption, but the document I saw from uh, the finance minister, Dr. Omar Zakhirov, uh, made a very interesting point, and that was that of the $19 that they 
estimate America has spent in Afghanistan, only one billion of that has gone through the Afghan government, in which the Afghan government has had full discretion and control. So what the Afghan government is saying is, while $4.2 billion may well have left the country, uh, it's not necessarily our fault. And what they uh, are doing is pointing the finger at the private contractors, uh, at the security industry, at the various uh, modern-day camp followers, if you will, who have followed uh, the American war machine into Afghanistan. Jerome Starkey, thank you very much indeed. Um, Rosemary, I mean, we heard this sort of story. I mean, this is a lot of money, $4.2 billion going out through suitcases. Can you imagine a scene in Kabul Airport, which is, I mean, which, which is hard, hardly JFK. It's not sort of Heathrow. People going on with suitcases and stuff, nobody checks it out. We heard the same sort of stories in Iraq, didn't we? We did hear the same sort of stories in Iraq. And I, I must admit, at the time when we were hearing them, around about, I suppose it took two or three years after the invasion in 2003 for the stories to start to surface. And then they just swelled and swelled and swelled. And um, and then the, the, the bizarreness of... Uh, the, the the green zone in Baghdad and how life was so incredibly removed from life everywhere else in the country. And the war that a lot of Americans, principally because they were the most numerous and they were in the forefront, but other nationalities weren't immune, it, the, the war that they experienced and profited from, uh, it, it was quite shocking. Mm. And uh, it's not just the locals that are on the make. Uh, this this war made money for a number of people, but all wars do. It's just that somehow, because it was supposed to be fought for such noble aims, one doesn't anticipate this. Yeah. John John Dickey, I mean, this, this is absolutely right. All wars make money for lots of people, and we think it's unfair. The point is, it's not unfair if the job gets done. And there are a lot of indications the job isn't getting done. And, the, for example, the Iraq inquiry this week um, for, the, in, for the past sort of six months has shown that too often reconstruction itself has not been fought, fought through and therefore money's been wasted. Indeed. I mean, it came up very early in the Chilkat inquiry into Iraq that uh, the planning for the period immediately after the downfall of Saddam Hussein was woefully inadequate and that people went in without any equipment to uh, measure the, the size of the problem. There was looting of the museums and uh, people went without uh, supplies for, you know, simply a lack of forward planning. Yeah, some of them simply changed their name, Eric. Well, it's an interesting point, actually. That they, they we're told that the aid budget is not going to, going to be ring-fenced and we have to, I suppose that's to, that's to please the Lib Dems, is... is it's, it's going to be is 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 going to be ring fenced in the current review. The trouble with that is a lot of that aid money, in fact, doesn't really do much. I'm afraid, and it uh, and it gets into other people's pockets and this kind yeah, of thing. But we're also again, I doubt talking about Afghanistan with the aid budget uh, from now on, in part because they've now we discover, got all these wonderful minerals which could make mm -hmm. them very wealthy several times over. Mm -hmm. But that is also going to be a honeypot for all the <laughs> rip-off merchants who are interested in any kind of uh, precious metals uh, as they've 
flocked to certain parts of Africa, they will flock to Afghanistan and people will be on the make. That's very true. And it will cut right across the theory and the strategy that the troops are in the forefront of implementing. And the aim, of of course, of the troops being there in the first place was supposed to allow the reconstruction teams to operate and to get the place reconstructed. And the the situation soon became so difficult that the reconstruction didn't happen. So basically the the military objective of certainly Herrick 4, which was the, the, the first of the heavy fighting deployments uh, never came to pass and, and, and this of course is the problem because the, the locals do not necessarily see western forces as forces that are improving their way of life and, 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 and if it gets around that they're, going to, that they're going to disappear in a few years time obviously their attitude to whether they go into great danger themselves to support the government may well be a little bit right. uh, flaky Can I just try, <laughs> try something on, uh, on, on dangers um, this week, five Afghan soldiers were killed in a NATO airstrike. And uh, it's not for the first time, is it? So, I mean, soldiers have been launched, these soldiers have been launched in an attack against insurgents, um, and NATO hit them. Blue on blues happen, I fear. And, uh, is it as simple as that? Yeah, I'm afraid it is, actually. I General mean, McChrystal was... said we have to preserve local people, including Absolutely. Afghans. And in fact, the air power has not been used as much. Although, uh, as my, my airmen friends would kill me if I didn't say that actually air power is not necessarily the thing that kills most civilians. They're killed, by, they're killed in other ways. But certainly... Disease. Uh, well, no, actually by, by, mm. by roadside bombs, which kill mm. a lot of civilians as well as killing the military. Um, but, I mean, it, uh, even with modern surveillance techniques, which, which are very good compared with, say, World War II, which we've been talking about, you, you, you do get a situation, particularly with Afghan forces, who may look on a screen a bit like the enemy um, and and you hit them and it's something you shouldn't do I mean at least at least the command in Afghanistan seems to have hoisted in uh, the fact that you mustn't use firepower too much that you've got to show restraint what is it brave restraint or whatever or heroic restraint and that and the soldiers don't like it particularly the American ones who prefer to shoot first and ask questions afterwards but nonetheless they have they have to show and they are showing they are obeying orders they are showing uh, and that is a good first step. You wouldn't step. think, Eric, that that is a less than sophisticated sort of uh, no, observation of the Americans? Yeah, I, I, I think that's extremely unfair. That it, they may have been like that in 2003, but it was McChrystal who was the one that was advocating oh, that's very true. a much more that's restrained it. approach because you win hearts and minds and get them working no, on your as the same say, side as you. As I say, they have improved, but, but if you remember... Um, uh, uh, Petraeus, I think it was, or it might have been McChrystal, had to go down to a unit and say, I'm sorry, you have to face extra danger. And he didn't get a very good response from the unit. It goes against some of the instincts of using high firepower. It's the American way of war, and it can be extremely effective. But it can often create enemies rather than friends. And what you're trying to do here, and the Americans have recognised this, and General Petraeus is the leading expert on counterinsurgency. I have huge confidence in him. If anybody can turn it but around, th- what, he, he I think can. what we do learn from this is that they had to find their own way to that conclusion and then it takes a while to turn the whole machine around and unfortunately some of those lessons were learned by British forces in other wars at other times right uh, in a very small scale way albeit in Oman in the Dofar war from 65 to 75 but also very significantly in Northern Ireland uh, the, the they will now tell you, some of the military analysts, that they spent 10 years getting it wrong and then had to spend... or five years getting it wrong and then had to spend 10 years putting it right in terms of... war. 
Uh, All wars like that. Indeed, and it, it does mean that there's no possibility for Britain, which I think was the aspiration, to play uh, the, the wise advisor to the great it's American true. superpower. It suddenly dawned on me that if the, Euro, uh, if the World Cup had gone on for a bit longer... Britain might have got it right in the end. <laughs> yeah. Well, maintaining the corporate memory is very difficult. <laughs> yes. Listen, um, if you just joined us, um, uh, you're listening to Sit Rep with me, Christopher Lee, also at the uh, Sit Rep Roundtable, John Dickey, uh, Rosemary Hollis and Eric Grove. Listen, uh, there's something else that's sort of a bit bothersome, isn't it? Uh, or is it... Uh, in Poland is a missile deal, the European missile deal, which the Americans have just signed. And this allows American US uh, missile defences to be based in Poland. And we knew it was going to happen. There were doubts whether it should happen. The Russians objected to it. The thing that strikes me, Rosemary, is this. Um, if you bought, let's say, anti-ballistic missile uh, systems, which is not just missile systems, in a country... You're breaking the protocols of the ABM treaty, aren't you? Because you're only supposed to have them around your capital and one other site. All you've got to do is to say you're frightened of somebody else, in this case, Iran. And therefore, it's okay to have them there. It's always, been, it's, it's, it's always intrigued me, this, this argument, that, uh, which was used by the Bush administration as to why we need something more in Europe. Oh, no, it's nothing to do with the, the Russians now. Uh, it is to do with Iran. Uh, I mean, they should be so lucky that they're so dangerous to the whole of Europe. Uh, but the Iranians? Yes. John, it, there is this great fear still, isn't it? I mean, it, it, numbers of people have said on this programme that the biggest, uh, two biggest problems and the likelihood of conflict, whatever, one is climate change and the consequences of that which people don't really sort of cotton on to as, mm -hmm. as something that you could go to war over and the other is Iran. Yes, I think it's probably overplayed by um, Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel for obvious reasons to uh, engage the Americans into uh, a policy of cleansed fish and, uh, fist instead of open-handedness. But if you talk to people in Eastern Europe in, uh, Czech, in the Czech Republic and in Poland, they are the people that feel themselves vulnerable and do want some sort of uh, umbrella of protection that would enable them to feel more secure in their beds at night. But secure yeah. from whom? Secure what? from whom? Well, uh, you know, we never know which rogue state may suddenly uh, acquire the ability to strike with... with uh, uh, well, rogue yeah. states are very convenient, aren't they? I mean, I, I don't... Apart from North Korea, that does fling things about in a very frightening manner, mm. this has not been the normal procedure of these states in the Middle East. They, and yet, they are labelled these menaces that are going to do things that are totally irrational in terms of their self-interest. Tell me then, OK, let, let's, 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 let's put this in the, this week's context. Uh, Israel's Prime Minister, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, He's finally got to the White House to talk peace to President Obama, yeah? And I was looking at them, uh, or looking at the film of them, um, shaking each other's hands, smiling, apparently getting on very well. They, they weren't sort of the tight-lipped diplomatic smiles. But does anybody actually believe that President Obama, as powerful as he is, as present 
and as also as powerful as his nation is, can actually tell Israel what to do? I no. I can't wait for the emperor's got no clothes little boy to come along and say that everything that the Europeans have been doing and saying and everything that the Americans have been doing and saying about making peace in the Middle East is f nonsense. I, sadly, that's true. Mm. That is true. I mean... Uh, and Netanyahu knows that he can get away with murder. He really can. And because there are enough political pressures in the United States on an American president which will stop I mean, getting away with murder is a, is a euphemism. A euphemism, of course. Yeah. Well, you know, double meaning. Mm. But, they, but no, I mean, they can, that he can get away with virtually anything because the political pressures on any American president, particularly a Democratic one, actually, are such that it is very, very difficult for an American president to put sufficient pressure on an Israeli government that would really make them change their policy. And I don't see any president doing it of whatever persuasion. There was one attempt by James Baker. Yes, there was, but it's not, it, it's very difficult. James it's Baker difficult, had the ability to say to them, I will stop the replacement of the F-16s, I will stop the funding. And here again, I think Obama, you know, missed an awful trick. When he came into office, he called for a freeze on settlements. And he's reneged on that because even now, as Netanyahu is in Washington, Mayor Barkat of Jerusalem has allowed planning permission to go ahead. 23 Palestinian families have been there since long before Israel became a state, are being thrown out of their houses. And well, this is the Judaization, as the Palestinians mm. call it, of Eastern Jerusalem, in addition to the growth of the settlements in and around the West mm. Bank. Now, what a couple of Israelis were telling me a couple of months ago is that they now recognize those that want a two-state solution for their own security, that they don't know how to get out of the mess they're in. They've created this monster, the religious nationalist settlers, and by all estimates, if they do a compromise deal on sharing... Uh, the land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, uh, then you'll have to move 70,000 of the 400,000 settlers. And the Israel Defense Force, the IDF, has now too many religiously and ideologically motivated officers to be trusted with the task. Exactly. So Israelis are starting mm. to talk about how they may need foreigners, Britain... United States included to come and do the removal of settlers mm. well, in the that's name... like a peacekeeping force? No, the removal of settlers. Uh, the, the Israelis are talking about Hang how... On, the, let's get this right. The, is, when you say the Israelis are talking about it, I mean, who is talking about it? What are they actually saying? Uh, I need... <clears throat> to look up when it was said, but an Israeli told me last week mm -hmm. that, um, and he didn't say this on the record, but he told me last week that it has been established that the people who would have to do the job of moving settlers to make way for a Palestinian the 70, state, 000. the 70,000 minimum, uh, would not be the IDF because uh, it will work. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And therefore, uh, I asked, well... Who then? And he said, well, maybe the police, the Israeli police. No. Uh, and maybe, he said, you guys. And um, the, the, there is this notion, and it's, it's going around the circuit of, uh, you know, the Middle East watchers that have got their eyes fixed on this particular conflict, that is the Israeli appetite for the involvement of foreign forces uh, actually is shifting, but it's a poisoned chalice for the Western forces that might have to go and do that. It's, it, it's basically doing it because we're the ones saying we need the Palestinian state and the Israelis are saying, well, then we need to blame you 
because we don't want to divide ourselves against each <laughs> ourselves. Do you see any Israeli government staying in power if it invited in foreign forces to remove Israelis from a particular piece of land? It might be the only thing that enables national unity I to survive. I do not see any Israeli government surviving that. Well, I don't see any Israeli government surviving moving the settlers mm. themselves. So they right. won't get moved. Mm. Oh, they will. OK, listen, I want to talk about the Iraq inquiry. It's continuing in London this week. Two obvious claims made. The former Defence Secretary Bob Ainsworth said that the MOD treated badly the families of service people killed in Iraq. Mm. And Tony Blair was accused of, um, well, very much exaggerating Iran's role in supporting al-Qaeda's insurgents in their attacks on British and American forces in Iraq. Um, on the line... Uh, the uh, security and defence editor of The Guardian, Richard Norton Taylor. Um, the British ambassador, Richard, to Tehran at the time, Sir Richard Dalton. Yes. He wasn't very, wasn't very nice about Tony Blair, was he? He wasn't. Well, most uh, people at the top of the uh, Foreign Office diplomats weren't, and former ones and current ones, especially those who are Arabists, let's call them, people who uh, knew uh, the Arab world uh, well and knew what kind of reaction those countries would have. Um, I mean, it's not for going natives, it's whether hostage syndrome or whatever, but it's the, I think, genuinely, um, you don't have to be a genius to, to work out that uh, countries like Iran and others uh, would be concerned about an invasion of Iraq. And the Iran, particularly, I mean, Richard Dalton was going on about how uh, they could have, or the, the, the West, as were, and the, uh, uh, countries in, uh, who were involved in the invasion of Iraq would actually... Um, um, could be on the same side of Iran. Iran indeed applauded them in the sense because they wanted they got rid of their old enemies, Saddam Hussein, the Sunni Muslim, as opposed to the Shias, where of course the majority in Iraq were living but being um, abused, uh, to put it mildly, by Saddam Hussein. So anyway, Richard Dalton, in a nutshell, says Blair exaggerated uh, uh, the blame, uh, putting the blame on, it, on on Iran immediately after the invasion for uh, supplying arms and, um, uh, and and people, indeed, even. Revolutionary Guards to help the Shia militia around the place, including southern Iraq, and encouraging the al-Qaeda in Iraq. See, the other side of it, I mean, he, he, he was saying that, well, Iran actually wanted a stable government in Baghdad, yes, yes. and he said that we never grasped that, or certainly yes. Downing Street never. He said, and there's also a very good reason. They wanted to do business. It was a commercial exactly. reason exactly. to do exactly. this. Well, pretty early on, I mean, when the, when the, when the border opened to, put that way, um, uh, to, to, to Basra in the south, the, the, the area of Iraq bordering Iran there, uh, very, very soon after the invasion of Iraq. And the, uh, the, the Basrawis are not, not, not having much, and they don't have electricity and water and so on, but they're, uh, they're being flooded with sort of uh, Iranian um, fridges and small cars and things like that. So, of course, they did have a, a commercial interest as well. And, and I think this, uh, as, as the Chilcot inquiry has done so often in its uh, year or so of... of, of uh, public evidence it uh, you've had witnesses who are getting their own back if you like their their their, their frustrations of the past against uh, the former prime minister tony blair um it, uh, the, uh, it, it, it's coming out and it's coming out especially as you say with richard dalton the former ambassador to british ambassador to, to tehran this it's, week there's another side of this of course and it's just not people uh, shooting from the hip um there is a, an enormous uh, amount of documentary evidence which is not necessarily coming to uh, coming to the public which of course the committee will have read which will be referred to presumably in in the in the final report to support these sort of claims 
the sort of claims that people like Richard Dalton are making. Yes, and I think uh, the frustrating thing, certainly frustrating for outsiders, including journalists like me following it, is that the committee member, the Shilcock committee members, are reading, have seen documents which we have not seen. Some are being declassified from time to time as we know, but um, they, uh, they, they are reading or they're, they're, their questions are being prompted by documents they've, they've seen or, or private evidence they've heard. And uh, so, so they're leading questions, uh, really, and they know probably what the answers are going to be. Certainly not, they're not worried about uh, being provocative uh, or, or provoking their witnesses, let's put it that way. Yeah. And former Defence Secretary uh, Bob Ainsworth, yeah. uh, he was saying the government let down the families of British troops killed in Iraq over the support given to them. Pretty ghastly sort of statement to have to make, isn't it, as Defence Secretary? Well, again and again, we were letting people down, he said. Basically, families, I think he was, he was talking in the context of families of uh, killed soldiers, um, when uh, you know they have this system of the system of liaison officers uh, looking, meant to be looking after the individual families, grieving families, and um, he said that you know, the liaison officer in a particular case would leave, go somewhere else, be be deployed somewhere else, and, and, and this family would le- be left sort of high and dry away without any any sort of support um, from the MOD, the kind of emotional or, or side really, or the um, just, just the moral side, I suppose. And uh, Bob Ainsworth did say that. I mean, he also. Um, it sort of blamed it uh, uh, on, on the other question of not helping families during inquests. Uh, Ainsworth seemed to bl- blame the, the, the MOD lawyers, um, which a lot of people are, of course, easy, easy target, for, for, for not actually giving more evidence or helping families at inquests. Richard, final sort of point. I mean, given your time as uh, defence correspondent, then defence editor, so there's a long time following the, the MOD. Do you get a feeling this was total MOD incompetence or total uncaring in the manner it treated the families? Well, maybe a bit of both in a sense, because I think the MOD has been protected, hasn't it? We've seen it in other cases. We've seen it in, in the legal advice about how we, um, or how soldiers were, were, were advised to um, look after Iraqi detainees. I mean, there was, a, there was a kind of feeling, we've seen it in many, many cases where judges of all sizes and descriptions really in the High Court and Appeal Court have criticised MOD lawyers. The kind of the MOD has been protected. I mean, it's got a, it's got a, it's a unique position. It's got a tremendous job on its hand. Uh, some of them very very difficult. Uh, the range of responsibilities the MOD have, but. It, it, it is sort of brought up into this, uh, traditionally, into, into a culture of, uh, un- of lack of accountability, really. They haven't been brought to account. And, and you, if you, you have this sort of rather, uh, maybe it's just a bureaucratic syndrome, uh, because of the concern and, and what got, what's drilled into you, partly by the Treasury, I have to add, of don't uh, give people... Um, um, uh, you've got to be very, very tight uh, to, to people when it comes to money, but also when it comes to, 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 to talking to them at all. If you might open the way to, my God, these people are going to um, compensate because I've said something, they're going to demand more compensation. And maybe you get more lawyers too on the other side, of course. I'm not talking about ambulance chases, so to be sort of cynical like that. But there is an element of that, I think. And, um, and so when Ainsworth does sort of blame it on lawyers often, I, I can see why he does. And I can imagine a discussion I can imagine MOD lawyers telling military people as well as ministers, don't, for heaven's sake, say that, don't, quote, concede that. And so the MOD comes out as a hard, much less caring an institution than it need be. Richard Norton, Taylor, The Guardian, thank you very much indeed. Eric, mm-hmm. you've been around the MOD for a, a couple of years, haven't you? 
Yes, what do you I mean, reckon? It can be very bureaucratic, like any, any big organisation. I, I think there was a wider problem here about, the, about how far the nation is willing to use armed force. It's as basic as that, because people are becoming... The fact that we now have inquests for people... You know, that, 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 that has only happened quite recently, that, that for, for good reasons, uh, uh, I'm sure, uh, people are now much more concerned about casualties and families and this kind of thing. But on the other hand, it does mean there are serious, ever more serious political, uh, political problems and ever more serious, looked at very cynically, expense in deploying armed force. Right. Now, listen, something really, really exciting. Um, John Dickey, um, uh, speculation... All speculation, you see. Today, we might get the big announcement out of the spy swap. Um, the, there's an American, the American lawyer uh, who's defending one of the ten uh, suspected Russian spies in America that they were nicked a couple of weeks ago, weren't they? He says the case may be resolved today when they face formal charges. What's going on here, John? Well, it's been very difficult to follow this right from the start <laughs> because, first of all, when it was announced that those dreadful people were being held under suspicion of, of doing dreadful spying uh, for the, the Russians, Moscow held up its hand and said, oh, no, people don't spy. This is a new relationship we have between uh, uh, Moscow and Washington. And then 24 hours later, well, what about um, maybe doing a swap? And somebody has <laughs> been locked up uh, for several years, has, has told his brother, well, I'm actually on my way to Vienna in the next 24 hours, and I'm part of a swap. I thought that was quite good, actually. It was it? a clever a clever move, but, I mean, nobody's admitting anything, either in Washington or in Moscow, and until it's formally shown on, on the screens that these people are boarding planes going back to Moscow. But what happens, John, is, is normally in... Um, there's a tit-for-tat thing. Yeah, well, you can't do a tit-for-tat thing on this because uh, there is no tat. No tat. No, that's the trouble. But, I mean, I like the old-fashioned way when, uh, for example, we, we expelled 105 Alec Douglas Russian Hume. from Alec Douglas Hume and told Gromyko uh, six months before, look, we don't stop this. We have to do something really drastic. Gromyko said, you go ahead. And Alec did go ahead and, and, and got rid of 105. And, of course, the British Embassy took it tat and it had to cut down its numbers too and there was a limit on the but you see there's the movement of, of diplomats outside a certain area in London and Moscow but this this doesn't happen John, but the trouble is for the, the children who've been born and grown up as American citizens are they going to be sent back to, they to Moscow? They can they? They can actually say to the FBI well, they don't want to go. Their they, they like the American way of life presumably. Can I just uh, just one more thing we've got to move on to something else but, but John just one final thing on that that you're quoting Alec Douglas Hume and the expulsion of 105. The then Prime Minister, who was Harold Macmillan, mm. did not want him to do so, did he, really? No, no. And, and I'm thinking here that we've got... Um, uh, why did they announce all these spies at the time? Just when uh, President Obama was meeting President Medvedev... Uh, Somebody's out of hand here. Somebody stepped out of line. Yes, obviously the timing is not which either side wanted. And, and I know what the Russians will think. That What's this that? Is a plot. There's a plot by elements <laughs> in the yeah, administration. Yeah, we think so too, don't we? Yes, yes. Perhaps, yeah, we're not perhaps. on this. We're not, we're not on anybody's if I was If I was somebody working on the margins of legality and getting intelligence in Russia at the moment, I'd be very, very scared. But you, you, Eric... You always work on the margin of legality, uh, don't Eric, you? Eric, you've, you've been tapped up, haven't you, to, to, to spy? 
Well, no, I, I, I can neither confirm or deny that. There you go. Well, there there you go. Is, That's uh, the sort of uh, person we're dealing with. The margin, margins of legality. Listen, I tell you, I put the margins of, of legality. Uh, ladies in white and, and the bishop, John. This is John's show, actually. Um, in, in, it's, it's Cuba. Today, 52 political dissidents released in Havana. I think it's 52. That's right. All to do with one man, the bishop, and the ladies in white. Well, regular listeners will remember uh, some weeks ago I talked about these brave ladies in white parading down the main avenue of Havana uh, and uh, being applauded by people on the other side of the street. What they were doing was objecting to the conditions of the, the political uh, prisoners that are being held by the regime, over 200. Now, their case was taken up by the worthy Cardinal Ortega, mm-hmm. who had four hours conversation with uh, the president, uh, Raul. Um, Castro, uh, and now the next stage is 52 distance have been released. Right. Uh, we've, uh, we've only got sort of 50 seconds, but anybody see the fact that the Iranian authorities have declared a list of acceptable haircuts? Do you see that, Rosemary? I think it's about time they got that round to the men. They've been telling the women how to dress for far too long. Well, I mean, I mean tell us about the famous ha- uh, haircuts then. That I, I, I always thought that Napoleon had a quite good one. Eric Bloodaxe uh, had, <laughs> had a good haircut. Who are the most famous haircuts? that we would actually say, get your hair cut. Milliband. Mm. Hey? Looks like a robot. Mm. Who? who? Mr. The former foreign secretary who looks like a robot with his mm. hair like that. That's it's a political statement. Mm. No, it's not. That's a bit of slagging. No, no, no. I Anybody think here? John? No, but I think what is far more serious out of uh, Iran is the threat of executing a woman by stoning. A woman has already had 99 lashes for adultery, and now she is threatened with being well, buried and, up and, to and a Iranian chest. women have told me they, they go mm. to such lengths to keep us quiet they never will succeed. So here's to the Iranian women. I agree entirely. Yes. And but I hope the campaign that has been launched today... Save my mother big campaign in, in the papers today, mm, yes. in Iran as well. Yes. Stoning. Stoning. Yeah. And not, not huge stones to do it instantly. Stoning with certain stones that will take 30 minutes to kill the poor victim. OK, that's it for this week. Thanks uh, to Rosemary Hollis, Eric Grove and John Dickey. For those who've asked, we'll be here the same time next week and the next, with any luck. Then at the end of the month, we'll be starting at a slightly later time, but we'll tell you about that in good time. From me, Christopher Lee, until next week, goodbye. Mary, Mary's in the hut. Sit with Christopher Lee.